Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today, we are here to talk to Professor Lucia Carminati about her new book, Seeking Bread and Fortune in Port Said, Labor, Migration, and the Making of the Suez Canal between 1859 to 1906, published recently by the University of California Press. Professor Carminati is an Associate Professor of History at the University of Oslo. She's a historian of migration and the modern Middle East, researching the social and cultural history of Egypt in the 19th and 20th centuries, focusing on migratory routes and mobility at large, imperial interests, and infrastructural transformations. Today's book, Seeking Bread and Fortune in Port Said, probes migrant labor's role in shaping the history of the Suez Canal and modern Egypt. It maps the everyday life of Port Said's residents between 1859, when the town was founded as the Suez Canal's northern harbor, and 1906, when a railway connected it to the rest of Egypt. Through groundbreaking research, Lucia Carminati provides a ground-level perspective on the key processes touching late 19th century Egypt, which are heightened domestic mobility and immigration, intensified urbanization, changing urban governance, and growing foreign encroachment. By privileging migrants' uh, prosaic lives, Seeking Bread and Fortune in Port Said shows how unevenness and inequality laid the groundwork for the Suez Canal's making. Welcome, Lucia, to the new books in the Indian Ocean world, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about the book. Thank you, Ahmed. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all ours. We would like first to learn about the author. Can you please start it off, uh, off by saying a few words about yourself? That is where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in Port Said, and any influential mentors or uh, books along the way? Sure. Um, I grew up in Italy, which is where I pursued my undergraduate studies and my uh, master's degree. 
And later, when I traveled to the U.S. to uh, start my Ph.D. at the University of Arizona, I had the, the wonderful pleasure to meet uh, the person who would be become my mentor, uh, Julia Clancy-Smith, who's a renowned historian of the Mediterranean, uh, of Tunisia, and of much more. And she inspired me to become a historian of migration. I had been interested in Egypt um, since my undergraduate studies, because that's where I had been studying both Fusha and uh, Ammeya. So I had been traveling to Cairo and studying Arabic. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to explore Egyptian history further. And uh, I, I quickly came to discover that uh, Port Said and the Suez Canal region really uh, needed to be um, to be written about in a, in a different way, because um, what most of the historiog historiography had been concerned about was uh, success stories of the uh, technological uh, triumph or the, the diplomatic uh, bickering uh, following or preceding the construction, the excavation of the Suez Canal. But what I came to be mostly interested in was uh, the very human story behind the uh, behind the undertaking, uh, which was uh, which was a history of migration, which was a history of people coming to this uh, region uh, that had been underpopulated uh, from other parts of Egypt, from other regions uh, of from other provinces of the Ottoman Empire, as well as other Mediterranean uh, regions uh, and European countries. So really, this was a, um, a place uh, made from, from scratch and inhabited by many different individuals and, and, and groups who uh, started interacting in novel ways. And so that's what I uh, became interested in, in, in exploring and writing about. Thank you for that. Uh, you opened the book with a quotation that we just mentioned uh, from the Romanian writer uh, Estrati, from 1934, in which he says, Port Said will remain for me the great crossroads of maritime routes where my heart has felt and recorded the pulsation of the arteries of the universal life of our planet. Uh, can you uh, tell us in, in more details how you became interested in exploring the role of migrant labor in shaping the history of the Suez Canal and modern Egypt? Yeah, so... <clears throat> And this can be edited, I guess. <laughs> Sorry, I need to clear my throat. Uh, Panaiti Strati's citation uh, really struck me and, and uh, remained with me because I think it captures one of the basic tensions that the book tries to recreate. So on the one hand, there was the rhetoric of the Suez Canal as this uh, modern global waterway that would open up uh, maritime circulation to uh, to the world's inhabitants uh, in a in a sort of a romanticized uh, idealized way and then on the other hand there were the inequalities and the and the uh, and the lack of um, the lack of access to these um, promises of global mobility that the Swiss canal theoretically embodied and uh, Panaiti Strati, who traveled to Egypt several times in the very beginning of the 20th century, uh, and then later on published his uh, impressions, his writings, 
um, sort of he captured uh, this this tension, I think, because he did travel in and out of Egypt. So in a way, he had a privileged access to these new forms of mobility. But then at the same time, he was what someone else defined a member of the traveling bohemian of the early 20th century. So he was uh, uh, an intellectual, uh, but, a, but a working class intellectual who came from a humble beginnings and um, also was not part of the, of the wealthy uh, elites uh, of the so-called uh, cosmopolitan past of Egypt that, again, has been romanticized so often. So I think that this one person whose citation I decided to include at the very beginning of the book, uh, again, captures uh, in his own person, um, this this sort of this tension, this ambivalence about mobility in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. The idea of the Suez Canal has been preoccupying uh, humans for thousands of years. Um, how do you explain this preoccupation with the idea of the Suez Canal from Pharaonic times all the way to the Ottomans? Well, definitely the. Um, the idea or the plan to create a shortcut, um, a, a bridge that would uh, unite the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, as well as uh, separate or, or create a cleavage between Asia and Africa, uh, had been around, as you noted, for, for centuries and uh, had been a, a sort of a political dream or, uh, or, or um, a plan uh, uh, by by many, cultivated by many. Uh, what happens in the 19th century is that this dream uh, becomes possible, uh, but remains wedded to, uh, of course, uh, colonizing plans. And so we see how the Swiss Canal project and undertaking becomes the lightning rod of um, of French interests embodied by the Swiss Canal Company. Uh, it becomes contested uh, first and later embraced by the British. Uh, it becomes something that the Egyptian autonomous, still Ottoman, but, but autonomous ruler of Egypt uh, becomes enamored with. Uh, and of course, at the same time, it becomes a project that the Ottoman center, that Istanbul, um, sort of is not enthusiastic about because it did present uh, uh, a breach of Ottoman sovereignty. Uh, so in, uh, in 1859, we see the beginning of the excavation starting uh, in Port Said. So starting uh, at this one point on the northern Egyptian Mediterranean shore, uh, going southwards, and that made sense because um, uh, equipment, um, sort of the, the materials needed for the excavation uh, would be shipped from, uh, from the north, from Marseille, uh, and so uh, mostly, so that it made sense to start from Port Said going southwards. Uh, but we see how with the beginning of, of the excavation, uh, a harsh uh, sort of diplomatic uh, political struggle also unfolds. And um, what I argue in the book, or part of my argument, is about uh, the important central role of migrant labor in these uh, broader diplomatic um, clashes, how uh, these workers who start gathering on the northern Egyptian shore 
uh, in April 1859 and onwards, how they became sort of pawns in a in a in a bigger game. Um, but by showing that they became pawns, uh, my intention is not to see, it's not to project them as uh, passive victims, but rather it's to show how, it's to show their historical role. It's to make sure that migrant labor, uh, the role of migrant labor in history actually shines through and how the presence and the activities of these laborers who often were uh, difficult to, uh, to govern, to control, how this presence actually became something that um, uh, the, the authorities were very much concerned about and something that affected authorities' decision on this uh, strip of land that was being cut uh, going southwards towards Suez on the southern uh, edge of uh, the isthmus the of Suez, of this desertic strip of land. And Suez, of course, lay on the Red Sea. So became so the sort of the, the 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 end goal, the destination of the project of the Suez Canal. The history of Egypt is characterized uh, in in many ways by mega projects from its ancient times to the Hamad Ali Pasha, Alexandria canals, and other projects. But what sets the Suez Canal apart from all of these mega projects? Is it because of its transregional history? And if so. How does that change our view of Egyptian history? So that's an interesting question. What I'm trying to do with the book uh, is actually to do exactly what you're um, sort of suggesting uh, does not apply to the Suez Canal. What I mean is that the Suez Canal has been always um, talked about in terms of um, its importance in uh, in regional histories, its importance in in global histories of um, supposedly global circulation. But what I'm trying to do with the book is to plug the Swiss Canal into back into Egyptian history proper. And so I'm trying to show that, uh, yes, the Swiss Canal became uh, a contested terrain for um, Ottoman-Egyptian um, uh, discussions and clashes. It became uh, a hot uh, sort of um, a very contested ground for British and French clashes, but um, this was not all happening uh, outside of Cairo's purview. Uh, this was something that could be uh, narrated and pictured as one of the mega projects, uh, as one of the Egyptian mega projects that you've mentioned. And what I'm trying to show is that actually uh, the Egyptian rulers were much more present and vocal than we've or always pictured them to be in uh, in the historiography that we have available on the Swiss Canal, where they are mostly in the background and mostly uh, silent or passive. So um, I am trying to capture the Suez Canal in its um, broader regional and global relevance, but I'm, not, I'm trying not to forget the Egyptian, the specifically Egyptian, and of course Egyptian Ottoman, but uh, the Egyptian context in which this history unfolded. And so uh, sections of the book, for example, uh, do recall the, uh, the Mahmoudiyah's Canal and uh, actually create a parallel uh, between uh, the, that earlier project and the Swiss Canal project by saying that uh, 
in in Suez or uh, in the Isthmus of Suez, we see efforts by uh, Cairo uh, to actually reach out and um, grasp control of what was happening of the uh, immigrant of the growing immigrant population in the Isthmus of Suez, uh, of for example uh, policing functions over this unruly population. So even if these efforts may have been uh, not that successful, I'm still trying to uh, to gauge the Egyptian state's presence in this uh, strip of land by showing that at least authorities were trying and were trying really hard. And we're negotiating with uh, Swiss Canal Company officials. They were negotiating and clashing with uh, foreign consular representatives. So um, it's, it's this uh, negotiations and these struggles that I'm most interested in more than the actual success or whether they actually managed to control uh, these these migrant population and these budding towns that were coming into being along the Swiss Canal uh, in the making. And so specifically, I'm, I'm talking about Port Said in the north, uh, Ismailia midway through the Isthmus, and then uh, the, the, the smaller uh, Port Taufik in the very south facing uh, pre- the pre-existing uh, port town of Suez. So maybe what you're trying to say in a different way uh, is that Port Said can also think uh, help us to think about the issue of scale and, and narrating the history of the region between the local, the regional, and the global. And through looking at these different scales, we are getting different layers of the port's history. And you've decided to give more attention, unlike the previous scholarship, uh, on the lived experiences of the people who were attracted to join this project. Uh, Well, yes, please. So in a way, uh, this is a very, very relevant question because I feel this is the most pressing challenge I've tried to grapple with. But what I've tried to do was actually to embrace both the uh, the broader perspectives, uh, as well as the everyday experienced um, sort of um, the everyday life of of the the people who actually made this project available, and so the book uh, really ranges from the macro to the microscopic. Um, tries to dwell on on people's everyday life concerns and the the stuff of um, of their sort of minuscule uh, concerns in a way. Uh, but what I'm trying to 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 do is to give relevance and um, and sort of um, uh, open up the conversation about what actually made the the Suez Canal possible by embracing the lives of these often anonymous workers, both men and women, uh, and as well as children who came and um, and inhabited these places and worked on this project. Yes, and you give quite vivid accounts of these lives, uh, drawing on a plethora of, of, of sources that you draw from different archives. So what kind of sources did you uh, rely on to reconstruct these everyday experiences? How did you go about uncovering the personal stories and perspectives of migrants and locals during this time? So this was partly due to design and partly due to uh, happenstance discovering the archives, to be completely honest. Um, I had been planning to access uh, several different archives because I knew that in order to recreate the 
collective choral experience of, of the Suez Canal undertaking from uh, the standpoint of migrant workers, I needed to access multiple perspectives. So I had planned to work in Britain, in France, in Italy, in Egypt. Uh, I also tried to check out archives in Malta, uh, but that didn't uh, bring me um, very far. Um, and then within each country, I also uh, accessed different types of archives. So I tried to work in both diplomatic, state, central archives, as well as smaller, um, smaller archives of, for example, religious uh, organizations, religious groups, uh, often Catholic, who were assisting those uh, migrants who happened to be Catholic. Uh, but then... Um, once in the archives, I also uh, discovered that uh, there were the file documents, the ones that I could um, sort of um, consult through the existing uh, indexes, uh, but then other uh, kinds of documents, for example, letters, had not even been inventoried before by archivists. So those were the happenstance records that I was actually mostly excited about because these, in spite of their uh, not having been um, deemed important or meaningful uh, by authorities back then or by later by archivists, I think that these kind of sources are particularly uh, interesting because of the uh, everyday life details they contain and by the emotions that the authors often express. Uh, but I eventually, um, when writing the book itself, uh, because I was trying to address the uh, dilemma of different uh, nested scales, I tried to uh, to combine both the state's uh, perspectives on migration processes as well as the uh, on the ground perspectives of migrants themselves. And um, if I may uh, connect this to the to the chosen structure of the book, the four chapters actually um, sort of each each of them includes these multiple perspectives. But then there's also a progression from the first chapter to the uh, fourth one. And what I mean by this is that the first uh, chapter uh, lingers on the uh, movements of migrants themselves towards the isthmus of Suez. So it has more of a of a bird view uh, perspective on the on the isthmus. The uh, second chapter uh, further zooms in and so has uh, a geographically more limited perspective on the isthmus itself and on the processes of settling in and uh, creating a, a labor hierarchy based on uh, both gender, um, gender and ethnicity, um, uh, and which yielded uh, a very strict uh, sort of hierarchy among workers. Uh, the third chapter further zooms in and um, lingers on uh, on on the Suez uh, Canal and the uh, the creation of um, of so-called illicit activities or the the efforts by the authorities con to control such activities. And the fourth chapter further zooms into the uh, bars and um, cafes of Port Said itself, its streets, its entertainment venues, to uh, look at the interactions 
uh, the very um, sort of on the on the on the very molecular molecular level, uh, the interactions of different individuals and different groups within a specifically port sites entertainment venues. So Thank this you. is the overall sort of arch that I, I I tried to recreate with the with the structure of the chapters themselves. Thank you for introducing us to the architecture of the book. Uh, that's really useful to navigate it. Um, I guess I'm wondering about, since this, this is a history of migration also in many ways, how did you tackle the classical model of push and pull functionalism and thinking about uh, Port Said as a, as, as a, a node of traction that changed the demographic composition uh, and social dynamics uh, around the coast? And what were some of the key factors that contributed to the influx of migrants during this period? Thanks for a wonderful question. This is a, another this is another big challenge that I had to grapple with, because on the one hand, I tried to uh, show uh, what attracted people to uh, Port Said, so perspectives of gain, either real or imagined. But then there was much more, um, and so that's what the title itself of the book tries to capture. There's bread and there's fortune. <laughs> Uh, there's material gain, but then there's also a less uh, sort of a tangible, um, it opens up uh, the, the migration option uh, to less tangible perspectives of, um, of, of gain. Uh, what I mean by this is that uh, people were deciding to migrate because they often um, couldn't find jobs in even in, in parts uh, of, of European countries, which uh, we wouldn't uh, think uh, of uh, now as poor or uh, without resources, but that was the case uh, at this time in the 19th century. Uh, so from regions, from, um, from specific parts of, of the European uh, continent, people were deciding to migrate. Uh, were attracted by these perspectives of gain on the on the banks of the Suez Canal, uh, but then there was much more. So um, there were deserters, for example, fleeing from the military, military conscription. There were uh, people, uh, individuals who were uh, sought after by authorities, uh, by the police. So they were escaping that. Uh, there were political political. Uh, refugees as well, uh, trying to uh, fight to f to to flee from political persecution. Um, women, for example, the migration of women opens up uh, a whole other discussion in terms of what uh, drew women, whether they were uh, joining uh, uh, male relatives or whether they were traveling by themselves. And I've uh, tried to uh, the the host of characters in the book tries to embrace this diversity that I've just described. So, uh, for example, in terms of women, there are both those who traveled with their husbands, but then we also find cases of women traveling by themselves. And, um, and so uh, while we need to recognize that Egypt uh, in the mid-19th century presented perspectives of economic uh, gain to prospective immigrants, we also need to open up the discussion to a whole other sorts, uh, to a whole other uh, reasons to migrate that often we, we can't even account for because the sources do not really allow us to exactly pin down 
why certain individuals um, migrated to Egypt. And some of them actually just passed through and then moved on to uh, other destinations. So uh, again, um, it's, um, it's not a linear uh, process from point A to point B that I'm trying to recreate. Uh, but really, it's about the, uh, the complexity of migration in the mid-19th century, which also tries to say something uh, that is still relevant today about the, uh, the multiplicity and the complexity of, of individual migration choices that are also always combined with broader economic and political uh, or otherwise uh, changes that affect individual decisions and agency. This is helpful to think about the complexities uh, around the notion of mobility. But can you say more about how these migrants experience mobility, uh, where they come from? How did they experience the hardening of borders, the introduction of passport regimes, and policing of bodies and identities during this period? Some of the letters that I've mentioned before are the sources that allowed me to have a, a glimpse into the lived experience of migrants. Uh, but again, that may not tell us the whole story. So, for example, when it comes to uh, the challenge uh, of, of, of movement or when it comes to uh, failures, it's much harder to actually capture the, the lived experience of, of the people uh, living through uh, living through these events. What I've tried to what I've managed to reconstruct is uh, what people who actually made it, uh, who actually wrote from Egypt back home, uh, what they experienced. So in a way, even if I'm um, very excited about how vocal and how rich these sources are, I remain aware that there's a there's a there's different stories that I wasn't able to to tell and recreate. Um, some of these letters speak of uh, the toughness, the hardships experienced by these migrants, especially especially early on, uh, in the very first few years of the excavation project, and so uh, the first half of the 1860s, for example, um, these uh, years. Um, uh, are years of uh, of hard work, of poor shelters, of uh, scarcity of drinking water, for example, that letters themselves, uh, that migrants themselves capture in their letters back home, uh, in which they express their longing, their uh, isolation, their feelings of, uh, of having been forgotten by their own families. Uh, even if I want to highlight here, families were also present at the very beginning of the excavation. So I don't want to um, sort of give a picture of the work sites as uh, exclusively male pressing. Uh, male single individuals were present on the work sites, of course, but we also see that uh, women were there and families uh, also joined the venture early on. Hence, we have the presence of children as well on the work sites of both children who were born there, uh, testifying to uh, the, the presence of sort of the, the to the fact that uh, relations, relationships were formed on site. Uh, but also there's there's evidence of children migrating themselves uh, to the Suez Canal work sites and to uh, what will become uh, Port Said, the town of Port Said and then the town of Ismaili and so on. 
Um, when it comes to the hardening of, uh, of, of borders and the, um, the development of passport regimes and regimes of more uh, controlled mobility, um, that's actually something I'm really interested in uh, developing further. So that's something that I'm planning uh, to uh, center my next book on. Uh, and I'm interested in that because I think that exploring the formation of uh, both, both the tangible border and the more intangible practices around border crossing, that would give me the chance to both recreate or to, to explore the experience of the uh, individuals actually doing the crossing, as well as the ex as well as the perspective of the state trying to uh, to to keep an eye uh, on uh, on what was happening along its borders and trying to develop uh, sort of more sustained practices of surveillance. I give an account of uh, some forms of surveillance developing, especially around Port Said. Uh, in my chapter, my third chapter about uh, policing and illegal activities and the uh, changes that happened with the transition to the um, to the British occupation post 1882. But uh, I think that this is where the book um, sort of um, uh, stops short <laughs> in a way because I was so enamored with um, the migrant experience itself that I, I, I did not really fully develop uh, an exploration of uh, the Egyptian state's perspectives on what was happening. I, I tried to, uh, to explore that, but I think that uh, uh, a full new uh, treatment of, uh, of Egyptian state formation when it came to borders uh, deserves its own uh, separate uh, treatment, which is something that I, again, I plan to, uh, to go on doing in the next future. However, what you do in the book, and you do it well, is you give, you give us uh, a sort of experiential reading of, of the notion of unevenness and inequality, which are key aspects that lay the groundwork for the Suez Canal's development. Can you elaborate more on how these socioeconomic disparities manifested in Port Said and their implications for the uh, broader historical narrative of Port Said? Chapter two is the the um, the part of the book that um, tries to fully develop a discussion of how uh, gender-based and ethnicity or racial uh, racially informed categories came to be when it came to uh, developing uh, uh, a Suez Canal society, a Portaidian society, which was very much based on 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 work and on the labor uh, that was needed, uh, that was re required in the Suez Canal project, uh, and I tried to. Sort of describe the the discrepancy in a way between certain ideas of what uh, Egyptians should be doing, of what Greeks should be doing, of what Italians should be doing. So on the one hand, sources themselves are um, in a way deceptive because they describe how uh, certain groups were pursuing certain tasks, but then. Um, other sources that are more that are closer to um, sort of everyday life and to what was actually happening on the ground, uh, they reveal how 
um, different tasks actually uh, included uh, different kinds of people. So, for example, the job of earth removal, which was considered to be uh, a humble kind of task, was not just performed by uh, Egyptians, for example, but we see how a host of other individuals were also engaged in this kind of task. On the other end of the spectrum, we see how, uh, for example, um, uh, other uh, kinds of more respectable jobs uh, uh, also included not just uh, French individuals, but others were also uh, engaged in these um, different kinds of tasks. So there's a gap between uh, what um, what people should be doing uh, according to these uh, to to these grand plans uh, designed by the Swiss Canal Company representatives, and then there's a gap between that and what was actually happening. Um, every day on the Swiss kind of work sites. Um, and I can also cite um, something that I'm really interested in and I couldn't um, develop further, but the issue of what language was spoken on the Swiss kind of work sites, there's some evidence of a kind of pidgin uh, that um, was a mix of Arabic and uh, of other terms um, that were circulating the Mediterranean at the time. Uh, that seems to be the, the, the pigeon in use on the Swiss color work sites. And that, I think, is, um, is a clear indication of how people were uh, working uh, next to one another, uh, interacting, not necessarily uh, in, a, in, a, in an ideal world, in, in, in an ideal way, often. There were clashes, there were uh, betrayals. Uh, so, I'm not trying to argue that uh, different individuals and social groups were all getting along and cooperating and helping one another. But what I'm trying to say is that uh, they were much closer and mingled together than we we may have thought uh, previously. And so it's that interaction that I think is worth uh, exploring more. And that's it's that interaction that the books try, the book tries to to fully flesh out. The year 906 marked the connection of Port Said to the rest of Egypt through a railway. How did this infrastructural change impact the town's growth, accessibility, and its relationship to the rest of the country? That's a really an open question, and that's something that I've um, uh, illustrated in, a, in an article that came out on the International Journal of Middle Eastern Studies, uh, which is... Um, connected to the book because it sort of further expounds something that I, I go I go in uh, in my conclusion. And the open question that I'm referring to is whether Port Said was really uh, in Egypt, was really part of Egypt, or was rather sort of attached to it, but um, but remaining uh, tangential or secondary or or removed from from the rest of the country. And um, I don't have a, a definite, a definitive yes or no answer to this question. But what I try to show is the is the ambivalence of Port Said in being uh, in, in probably being both things. So on the one hand, being um, a stopover in, in, in global trajectories, uh, a, a, an Egyptian port town uh, open to the world, open to the uh, to the influx and the arrival of, of people from all over. Uh, but I also try to show how um, 
uh, how Port Said really became of Egypt as well, because Egyptian authorities, as I tried to explain before, we're present, we're trying to uh, extend the reach to, to this uh, strip of land, to, to the Isthmus of Suez. Um, and so they were not absent or, or removed. They were, of course, encountering challenges in doing what they wanted, but that doesn't mean that, um, that the Egyptian state was absent. Uh, the issue of the infrastructure connecting uh, Port Said to the rest of Egypt remains uh, remained challenging, so remained an open an open uh, sort of a, an issue that uh, different observers were were wondering about and continue to wonder about for decades. So, 1906 is the chosen benchmark of the study because of these um, of these um, railway connection that comes to be that uh, again connects Port Said but but has issues it's slow it's not really working as people wanted to wanted to work uh, and so again um, Port Said becomes connected but um, but still uh, to some it still feels removed and far away um, so I think that the the benchmarks 1859 as the beginning of the uh, of the excavation, as well as the foundation of Port Said, and 1906 as the uh, connection of Port Said to the rest of Egypt, uh, these benchmarks uh, capture one of the key questions running through this project, running through this book. So, what, who, who, whose uh, whose city was this? Who belonged here? Uh, was this port town uh, uh, in the hands of foreigners? Was this port town an Egyptian port town as well? Uh, who belonged here? And going back full circle, uh, this is also one of the of the key questions, the key issues that Panait, the opening citation by Panait Strati also uh, raises. Right, and... Uh... In researching the history of Port Said during that time, by the turn of the 20th century, the Egyptian uh, press as well as European press was covering the developments uh, taking place in Port Said. What are the disparities and, and differences in uh, documenting uh, the events uh, in the port and how these different documentation processes in Europe and in Egypt uh, shape? Uh, the memory of Port Said and how people remember the history of Port Said on these both sides. I'm not sure I understood the question. Are you referring to the press specifically, like newspapers? Uh, yeah, newspapers and any account of Port Said uh, during that time. How both accounts differed uh, in documenting the project? Um, hmm. Like whether it was a success or not? Uh, Is that what you meant? Right, Th that's part of it, or also uh, the the experiences on the ground of labor. Did do you find any uh, correspondence between uh, the labor and the different presses, uh, their news and experiences, reaching uh, uh, broader audiences, uh, or were they limited to Port Said itself? The multiplicity of perspectives in the press is um, is the facet of the the multifaceted. Uh, sort of uh, um, um, so what we okay let me start let me start from scratch <laughs> so 
um, what is available in the contemporary press is um, is one of the strain of sources that I've decided to employ in this book. And in the press, as in all the other kinds of sources I've employed, there's a diversity of perspectives, uh, which sort of um, multiplied the viewpoints on on what was happening uh, in the in the Swisscom project in Port Said. Um, and um, and so of course this multiplicity uh, was uh, was challenging to to capture in writing, but I think it's also what makes this book particularly interesting. There's no one uh, reading uh, that I privilege, but I rather try to juxtapose many different uh, standpoints. Um, if I can give a concrete example, um, I can mention the uh, fourth chapter of the book that is about entertainment venues, as I explained before. But before uh, delving into uh, into Port Said's dive bars and uh, uh, holes in the wall, uh, it also illustrates the diversity of um, of leisure options. Uh, that were available in Port Said, um, for example, newspapers, the press. Um, and I tried to show how different newspapers were targeting different audiences, uh, segmented by uh, political lines or um, uh, lines of language use or, or belonging to a certain community. So what I tried to show by contrast is that while certain leisure, certain pastimes, including newspaper reading, uh, were dividing up uh, Port Said's population, uh, alcohol consumption, on the other hand, um, had the potential of actually uh, bringing people together. Then, of course, alcohol abuse would also fuel um, sort of emotions and, uh, and prompt fights in Port Said's bars. So uh, that again, did not, was not always a very peaceful activity, but at least potentially uh, bars and cafes were open to, uh, to anyone. And we see from the sources that different kinds of individuals and, and social groups were, were actually really mingling in this kind of venues. But um, going back to your original question, I think that newspapers themselves, as well as the other sources uh, that, I've, that I've used, they, they really do capture uh, a multifaceted um, sort of uh, uh, rendition of, of what migration meant at this time in the Mediterranean world at large, as well as um, en encapsulated, as it was encapsulated in Port Said in particular. Thank you for that. Uh, moving to the present, uh, how do you think the historical lessons and insights from your research can inform our understanding of contemporary issues related to migration in the Mediterranean region? That's a very relevant, uh, that's a very... Mm, I feel strongly about this, so thank you for, for raising this issue. Um, and while we need to acknowledge the the role of the current Mediterranean as, uh, as, a, as a grave for so many uh, migrants who try to, to cross it and, and reach the fortress Europe, I think it's also important to acknowledge the the longer history, the longer past of of this region as a 
as a as a as a place of crossings, not to not to do to deny the the weight the gravity of of the present circumstances, but actually to to prove uh, that uh, migration is a is a longer is a longer phenomenon that. Um, that really brought uh, so many uh, together. So it's not just uh, the the sort of the desperate non-white uh, bodies trying to cross the Mediterranean today, but those the, the very same desperate people were actually Europeans uh, going the other way. So I think I'm trying to sort of um, to also. Um, I'm trying to contribute to contemporary debates by really trying to show that migration at other points in the past was something that could be attractive for so many who uh, resemble us in, in the Western world today, us who, uh, who have grown accustomed to our own privilege and uh, maybe do not realize that um, that these very same places we inhabit today were places people were trying to flee from. Whereas what we think of as a relatively poor uh, region, people are trying to escape, such as the, the Middle East, was actually trying, was actually managing to actually attract people who had um, thoughts and dreams and perspectives of, of a better life. Right. It's really amazing how uh, history turns around and repeats itself and uh, really surprises us. Uh, and the book definitely contributes to uh, what the Mediterranean is going through by reminding us of this longer history that we should be cognizant of. Um, who do you hope will read this book and what sort of impact would you like it to have? You've mentioned some of it, but can you say more maybe about the scholarly community and students as well? My hope is that the book will be uh, enjoyed <laughs> and savored uh, for the uh, the everyday life that it manages to capture, and for the efforts uh, that um, for the, for the hope uh, that it conveys that this everyday life actually tells us something about what was going on at this point in time, um, but with a sense of. Uh, who was actually going through these uh, bigger changes in history. So the hope is that this will be of interest to uh, Egyptian, modern Egyptian historians, but also to historians of the modern Middle East at large. Uh, and because of its uh, thematic focus, I'm also hoping that it could be interesting to uh, urban historians or historians of, uh, of port cities, historians of the Mediterranean, uh, and um, as well as historians of 19th century infrastructural changes uh, around the globe, because uh, there, there were and there are connections to, uh, to what was happening in other sites uh, elsewhere uh, between uh, the Suez Canal, but also other larger infrastructural projects. Uh, I could not really go into that much in the book, but again, that's something that I uh, plan to explore more in the future. Uh, but the bottom line here is that the way in which I tried to write this book was to um, was to make it as enjoyable as possible, so that it could flow um, and be uh, enjoyed and 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 savored by readers who do not uh, need to be. Uh, 
uh, graduate students or or uh, historical or professional historians, but really by uh, curious readers who want to know more about the the nineteenth century uh, and uh, and people moving about and and dreaming about other places and trying to trying to make it trying to make it elsewhere. I second that uh, that the book is quite accessible and supplemented with amazing and gorgeous. Uh, reproductions of documents and images and photos of Port Said and maps and and the, the, the very people you're talking about. And it's uh, as I'm reading the book, I can definitely think of many places and many names that resonate with the stories you're bringing. And I also hope that the book gets picked up by movie makers uh, to make a feature out of it because the history of Port Said <laughs> is fascinating and we definitely need... Uh, somebody making a film about Fort Said, so <laughs> somebody listens. Uh, well, thank you for the endorsement. I, <laughs> that would be an interesting experience, for sure. Uh, so you mentioned uh, your future project and what you're hoping to work on. Can you please say more about what you've been working on since the book has been out uh, and or what you hope to work on in the future? Yes, I'm... Uh... Still trying to sort of uh, <laughs> find a path forward. There's uh, there's still many different uh, uh, trajectories that I I wish I could uh, take. Uh, so one is about the um, the history of of waste management in Port Said, and by waste I mean of course uh, refusable kinds, garbage, but also excrements, feces, and uh, wastewaters. Um, there's something very interesting, I think, in the way in which uh, Port Said became uh, a key uh, a key site in in disease disease control, uh, both because of its uh, location along the Suez Canal and because of its uh, peculiar um, sort of um, uh, pe- peculiar genesis, in a way, as an artificial city being excavated in sand and being um on 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 the surface on the surface of this on the surface of water or nested nested in between a lake and a sea and a canal uh, that's the one direction in which i would love to uh, to go but then uh, another one is um, an exploration of uh, the egyptian state along its borders and how borders how egyptian borders came to be uh, again, um, approached by multiple standpoints. So both from the standpoint of the migrants doing the crossing, but also um, the standpoint of um, of the Egyptian state uh, sort of uh, more centrally in terms of policies and, and laws that were being issued at the time. Uh, but another uh, project that i would love to mention right now is a collaborative project that i'm carrying uh, forward with uh, dr ella fratantuono uh, of the university uh, of, uh, um, of uh, north carolina at charlotte uh, and uh, we are um, editing a special issue on the history of childhood uh, in the modern Middle East, uh, childhood and migration. So it will be a special issue at the intersection of uh, Middle East and childhood and migration histories, uh, something that um, uh, has the goal of, of really charting new ground and raising new new questions. And this is something that is um, that I, I 
especially care about uh, because uh, children are present in, in my book, uh, in Seeking Bread and Fortune. Uh, but there's definitely much more that uh, should be explored and that is being uh, researched right now. So I'm, I'm really happy to be working with uh, Ella and to, be, uh, to create a showcase for those researchers who are working on, on topics um, that wed childhood and migration, because really their perspectives um, will be exciting, uh, will, will bring uh, exciting new insights uh, into, the, into our discussion, into our uh, field of modern, of modern Middle East history. All these projects sound terrific, and I look forward to seeing, the, to seeing their fruition and maybe having you again on the podcast, hopefully. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your insights and stories uh, of these uh, migrant labors with us today talking about your fascinating book and uh, thank you for the listeners for listening to today's episode in which we uh, explored Lucia Carminati's new book Seeking Bread and Fortune in Port Said Labor Migration and the Making of the Suez Canal between 1859 to 906 published by University of California Press in 2023 this is your host Ahmed Al-Mazmi stay tuned for the next episode of new books in the Indian Ocean World <laughs>